And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Earl Tilford, retired professor of history at Grove City College. He also is an academic fellow with the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies and holds a White House appointment to the U.S. Army War College's Board of Visitors. Uh, Dr. Tilford, thanks so much for being willing to join us today. Yeah, I, uh, my main interest is in finding out a little info, what you think is going on with Russia and the possible tension that may be building any history in the background that would affect relations going forward. You know, whatever you think is is appropriate. I, I think something's heating up and it concerns me. And it would be very helpful to me and to the listeners to... If you could take some time and bring us up to speed on this. And maybe first, you could include some of your background. Uh, how did you get into all of this? Okay. Well, let me tell you about a little bit what I know about Russia. Uh, Fifty years ago, when I was a college junior, or senior, I guess, my senior year, I took a Russian history course uh, and loved it. And I took two of them. So. And wanting to uh, get a master's degree in Russian history, I stayed at Alabama to... Uh, get a master's, but the man who taught Russian history turned out to be a lifelong friend. He was young. He was a few years older than I. Went to Moscow uh, for a year to do some research. And so I just got an MA in American history. But then when I enrolled in grad school in Washington, I was an intelligence officer by that time. And because of my interest in Russian history, I'd kept up with it uh, and uh, uh, was assigned, had been assigned to uh, the Soviet East European Airfields Branch at Headquarters Strategic Air Command doing nuclear targeting against uh, fighter fields in Eastern Europe and Russia. And uh, my expertise was growing in Russian matters then. In fact, I subscribed to the Russian Soviet Air Force uh, Officers Magazine so I could keep up with it. Um, Anyway, when I enrolled in my doctoral program, it was in American and European, modern American and European military history, with an outside field in Soviet uh, and East European politics and history taken by a, under a man named Vladimir Petrov, who was a Russian expatriate. Mm-hmm. But he'd been a Nazi collaborator during the war, so he got out of there. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, my love for Russian history was part of my intelligence as well at, at that point. I taught it at the Air Force Academy, and then uh, again uh, when I was at Grove City College, I the uh, man who taught Russian history and also Vietnam War history, which also I, I'd done my doctoral dissertation on Vietnam War, uh, died very suddenly of cirrhosis of the liver. Uh, just if like it took him in a couple of weeks. And uh, that was at the beginning of the semester, so I inherited his Vietnam War course and his Russian history courses. And I kept them both. Uh, continued to teach them. So I taught it at the undergraduate level for uh, several years. Anyway, as to what I think is going on in Russia, uh, Russia in many ways is like the American South. Uh, it's a prisoner of its history, and its history has not been history has not been kind either to Russia or uh, Dixie. And I think in, there's some uh, linking there. My Russian history professor pointed out that to me. It, Southerners have this thing about the land and being a part of it which is one of the reasons I came back to the South, <laughs> that Russians also have. Um, Russia's history 
has been one of Russia's always at its best when it's driven by very strong dark forces. And they refer to them as dark forces. And uh, the czars were that way. Uh, Stalin was certainly that way. And so is Putin. Um, Russia has had several themes. One is uh, it's torn between, if you look at the Russian national symbol, it's a two-headed eagle. Uh, and it was the that was the imperial, the the, the imperial symbol of Russia, uh, the part of the Tsarist, Tsarist Russia. It looks both east and west, and it's it's torn between the east and the west. The eastern influence came from the Mongols. They didn't conquer Russia. They they moved in a line across the south of Russia, and um, cut it off to, from the Islamic south, and. Um, uh, allow the Russians to, to keep their local governments and keep their religion as long as they pay tribute to the Mongol Khan. And um, the, uh, the, the Russian nobles would have to come down to uh, Astrakhan and meet with, the, um, meet with Genghis Khan or others who, and uh, uh, just be humiliated. Uh, we talk in the Bible about God making... Uh, the nations, his footstools. That's that's among that is an Oriental concept. Uh, conquered kings would be brought in, stripped naked, and the conquerors would use them as footstools and otherwise mm. abuse them. And that's what they would do. And after a day of abuse, uh, they would then be allowed. To, they would pay money, pay tribute, and then go back and exploit their people on their own. Um, and a very cruel. And when they, this didn't happen, the Mongols would send raiding parties to, well, destroy our cities. <laughs> Absolutely kill everyone else. Very painfully. Um, Russia's also looked to Europe with envy and with fear. Uh, conquests have come from Poland, from the uh, Germans, uh, into Russia and over the years. And so they, they want that border. Uh, Ukraine has always been sort of the, the, the buffer there, it's, 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 it's in many ways both Russian and European. Poland, Catholic Poland was anathema to the Russians. There were some Polish kings, Polish rulers who became czars, and when the people overthrew them, they stuffed their bodies in a cannon and shot them toward Poland. Oh, my. Russia is also, it's a very Christian country, but it's orthodox. When the Russian czars were dis- deciding what religion they wanted, they brought in representatives of, the, of uh, Judaism, Islam, Roman, Orthodox Christianity. I don't think they bothered too much with the Romans, but the Orthodox were present in Constantinople. And when the Jews came, they, they said, that's fine, one God is a good thing, strict moral code is a good thing, but what's this you want to do to what? <laughs> it's not me. <laughs> I'm not getting circumcised. Uh, and the Jews would even allow you to drink, which was okay. Mm-hmm. They brought in the Muslims, and no no pork and no alcohol, and they said, you know, get out of here. <laughs> uh, you're not taking that away. And then the Christians came in, and the, the Orthodox came in, and you could drink. Uh, your priests could marry. There were a lot of rules, but uh, they didn't seem draconian at all. Not, not as bad as Jewish rules and regulations, and certainly not as bad as the Muslims. So they adopted Orthodox Christianity, and it was a very ignorant religion. The uh, Roman clergy generally, later on, would be well-educated, 
not so. When the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury came to Moscow in the 19th century, he played a courtesy call on uh, the chief prelate of the uh, Russian Orthodox Church and found out they didn't even know there was an Old Testament. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they were totally unfamiliar with it. Oh, my. But uh, and when, when you get down to the village level, they elected priests, and priests would were either drunks who were good at nothing else, or they would uh, tax the people. Uh, they were they were uh, thugs who would tax people. Stalin studied for the priesthood. He spent a couple of years in the seminary, and if you can, you can see that in Stalin's oratory, particularly his oratory, uh, his eulogy for Lenin, it, and also it beginning of World War II, Stalin didn't like to go on the radio, uh, unlike Hitler, uh, because he spoke with a Georgian accent. But he did go on the radio a couple of weeks into the war, and he pleaded with you know the, the people of, of Russia as a, as a God-fearing nation and so on, and he even opened the churches up again uh, in Russia for a while. But um, Russia's always looked to the West with envy and fear, and I think that's in very much in Putin. Uh, the fall of the Soviet Empire, the fall of the Russian Empire, really hit them hard. And uh, now that they've gone sort of capitalist, uh, they're doing they're doing better economically. But uh, they're they're in their capitalist phase where America was in the 1920s. Uh, it's wide open; you can make a lot of money, but there's a lot of danger in it. A lot of uh, a lot of the old people in the KGB became businessmen. I know one of them very well, Colonel Shlikov. Uh, who went into the waste disposal business after he retired. <laughs> they're building much better military equipment now than they used to, mm-hmm. and they're selling it on the world market, which is part of their reason for their venture into Iran. The other is Persia's always been in the eyes of the czars going back to the 18th century, before the 18th century, even, I think, 17th century. But they couldn't get there because of the British in India and uh, later on in the British mandates in that part of the world. They've also always wanted uh, to get into the Mediterranean easily. Now, they got they can go through the Bosporus, but uh, at times when they were on, and, and Turkey has always been a big enemy of Russia, uh, that became difficult. Now, they've got Latakia, which is a small base, but it's on the Mediterranean, and it's in Syria. And, they are, and they've allied themselves with the Iranians which makes it very dangerous for, for Israel. Uh, I think maybe we discussed this last time when the Russia put in this air defense system at Latakia. Yeah. Uh, they now dominate Israeli airspace. Uh-huh. They can shoot any Israeli plane down uh, if uh, the Israelis ever try to attack uh, Iran. Uh, they can shoot them down before they leave Israeli airspace. They can also shoot down our plane flying out of Turkey into uh, Syria and into Iraq, particularly into Syria. So uh, Russia is there, and they are and they're they are in Syria. They are not leaving. They were in um, they were in uh, with the Egyptians prior to 1973, but uh, under Nasser and the man who replaced him, uh, the Egyptians were jailing uh, Egyptian communists right and left. It's just Russia wanted that presence there, uh, have a naval base or naval rights uh, near the Suez Canal, and uh, but they got out of there in 73, uh, right before the Yom Kippur War. In fact, hours before. 
but now they're back. They've got, they will exploit that Mediterranean base. But more to the point, the government of Syria is all white. Of course, the Iranians are Shiites, and an all white is to a Shiite what an Episcopalian is to a Roman Catholic. Mm. Uh, and uh, they, can, they, they, they share a lot. Not everything, but a lot. And they can certainly get along well. But now Iran has got a, a clear, the Republican Guard have got a, a clear ticket into Hezbollah, which is Shiite, in southern uh, Lebanon, before Israel could bomb Syria and, and interdict those supply lines. And they certainly could bomb Lebanon. Now with this S-300, S-400 surface-to-air missile system and Russian aircraft in, uh, in Syria, Israel can't do that. Mm. So that's a threat to Israel's northern a border that uh, Israel really has to be careful with. Russia has excluded us from the Middle East. Uh, we should have listened to the Israelis who did not want Assad removed. Uh, they wanted Assad to remain in power. He was an SOB, but they understood this SOB. And what this, this guy uh, really likes are his big bank accounts in Geneva, his Rolls Royces, and his beautiful British wife. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was not going to do anything to Israel that would endanger that. And Israel could wipe Syria off the face of the earth. They wanted to very quickly, even in conventional war, but not now that the Russians are there. So mm. They can't do it. Okay. What Israel does have going for it is it has its own nuclear forces, the way it denies it, and they have estimated two to 300 nuclear weapons. And if, uh, while it would only take about three nukes to take Israel out, they can launch weapons and take out all of Iran and, and and doing a lot of damage to, to Russia. Mm-hmm. Well, I was um, interested in this. Uh, by the way, today we're talking with Dr. Earl Tilford um, because, you know, we've been reading in the news how that uh, Russia has uh, begun its so-called biggest surface deployment since the end of the Cold War. Um, and I, I guess what they're trying to do is effectively end the war in Syria and they're doing this on the eve of a U.S. election. And so things are kind of heating up. I'm concerned that we don't get drawn in to a war where perhaps we don't belong, or maybe we do belong, but um, that, that do you have any comments on that? Yes, I was just on the radio this morning uh, with Pittsburgh Public Television talking about the uh, fighting that's going on in Mosul and how Ashton Carter, our defense secretary, said, well, we're, we're simultaneously, within the next few weeks, going to open up an offensive against Raqqa. Mm. Well, that's in Syria. And it's just uh, 30, not, I don't sure how far it is, but it's not far from Aleppo, where the Russians are bombing uh, the anti-Assad Syrians that we support. So we're, we're going to be going into Syria, and, and for, for one thing, the... Uh, the fighting to take back Mosul is going to be long and intense, and the uh, the, the Sunni Iraqis and Sunni uh, Syrians that are part of ISIS are probably going to get out of Mosul because they can blend in with people who are leaving. Right, and uh, they're either going to go back to Raqqa, uh, or they're going to go to they're going to disperse in the desert and get back there as they can. They're not going to form caravans or anything like that because they'll be hit by American air power, but they're going to leave behind foreign fighters. And they've had two years to prepare Mosul for these attacks uh, with underground tunnels that they've dug. They don't have sewers there, but they can move through these underground tunnels throughout the city into the outer areas, hit a hit in the rear. It'll be house-to-house, street-to-street fighting, very bloody warfare. 
We have the Americans who give firepower and, and air power above a thousand feet. We are allied with uh, the Peshmerga Kurds. Many of them are Christians. They have their own problems uh, with the Iraqi government, which is is Shiite and doesn't like them. Uh, the people in Mosul are Sunnis, and if the Iraqi army goes in there, it'll be the first time it's been in there as a liberator rather than as a conqueror. They're backed by Iran. Uh, the Iranians are in that area as well, and the Iranian militias will be participating, though I don't think the Republican Guard will. But they're there where the Americans are there. Um, the Turks are now getting involved. Uh, the Baghdad government doesn't want the Turks in there. The Turks are getting involved, and they're sort of tenuously allied with the Peshmerga, whom they consider to be terrorists. And, and that relationship is bad. Now we want to take all of that and go into Syria, where there are Russians. And yeah. And in the Iranian Republican Guard. As I was thinking through my remarks this morning, I put them under the, the heading of complexity in a military plan is not a good thing. Yeah. And this is complex. We're going to have the Turks involved. The, they consider the, the uh, YPG, the uh, People's Protection Units of the Peshmerga, a terrorist group. We consider them that until recently, and we've taken them off that group because we're supporting them. And they're going to be fighting on the same side. The Iraqis don't want the Turks involved. The Turks, meanwhile, are trying to build better relationships with Moscow because they built, they're convinced, Erdogan is convinced that uh, Washington was behind the coup attempt last summer that tried to throw him out of power. So he's trying to warm up. And he's a NATO ally, trying to warm up to the Russians. The anti-Assad group in Syria doesn't particularly like the Kurds either. So... Uh, this is a, a kind of a coalition of that got a lot of faults in it. And, oh, by the way, how do we get those people out of uh, Iraq and into Syria? And then how do we support that when we're going to be flying more and more missions right through Russian airspace? Right, basically. right. Uh, Hillary Clinton has talked about, oh, we'll establish a no-fly zone. Well, like with what, Hillary? <laughs> uh, in the face of what? Yeah. And, uh, they were asking this morning, well, is there any chance that an American plane might be shot down by a Russian or vice versa? Could this start World War III? And I said, eh, it could, but uh, during the Cold War, American planes were being shot down by the Russians that you never even heard about. Oh, sure, yeah. I'm just concerned that we're getting spread so thin, and many, I, I guess some leaders understand what's really going on in the military. I'm not sure that the politicians really understand very well. I'm an advocate of getting involved in just wars, and those are few and far between, in my opinion. Well, this is a just war. If, if we had a just foreign policy, uh, Syrian and, and Iraqi Christians and Jews would go to the head of the uh, list of, of refugees yes. coming into this country. Uh, they can be easily vetted, and they tend to be among the more educated. Mm -hmm. And there used to be very vibrant Syrian and Christian uh, and, and Jewish uh, communities mm -hmm. in both Syria and Iraq. Yes. They're gone. Ten, yeah. years, 10, 15 years ago, or not 10, 15, 10 years ago, I was in Israel. Uh, my Jewish guide, an American Jew, uh, with dual citizenship, was telling me uh, 10 years from now there won't be any Christians in the Middle East. Oh, gone. dear. That's, that was that's awful. 2004. And I thought at the time, well, that's ridiculous. There are Christians all over the Middle East. Uh, but uh, it's becoming more and more so. Israel is about the only place that's safe for Christians and Muslims in the Middle East, probably one of the safest places that you can be and be a Muslim or a Christian. But um, 
the Russians are definitely reasserting themselves. They're rebuilding their military. There are people who, who downplay that. And say, oh, no, Russia still has a declining population. Their uh, average length of life is still continuing to go down, but it's not as bad as it used to be. But I don't think that's true. I think that uh, I think Russia is reasserting itself. They're rebuilding their nuclear forces. Vladimir Putin is a bully. He, he has no respect for Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Uh, he won't for Hillary Clinton either. But no. he'll be tough enough to really get him angry, uh, but not tough enough to back it up. Right. And he'll despise her. Trump, you know, Trump he gets accused of being in cahoots with Putin, Putin, which he's not. He's never, he's never even met the man. <laughs> but I think the two understand each other. Mm-hmm. Um, they are both powerful men. They are both determined men. Trump has not done anything much in the way of national service. Uh, I have no reason to think he's anything but a good, good American, a patriot. Mm-hmm. And I know, I've often, often said uh, about Vladimir Putin, I wish we had somebody who loved our country as much as he loves his. In That's true. I've thought of that myself, yes. Uh, and I understand. You know, he's an intelligence man. I was an intelligence guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think intelligence people understand each other. And we respect each other. Right. We also know there's a need for each other. Uh, that we that there are some things you want people to know, and some things you don't want them to know. But what you do want them to know is to know that you're not coming when you're not coming. And uh, the problem with Barack Obama is he doesn't understand that. And the problem with Hillary Clinton, this thing she let out in the last debate that it takes four minutes from the time the president gives the launch order for the force to be launched. Now, I used to work at headquarters SAC as an intelligence officer in the, in the underground and early warning intelligence. And I don't know whether that's true or not. I really don't. And if I did, I wouldn't say it because I want to die in bed of old age. That's not right. In jail cell in Leavenworth. That's right. Um, but it's also you do not want your enemy to know things like that no. or even think they know things like that, even if it's not so. Yeah. Uh, because they'll make assumptions based on, 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 on false information. Well, I'm concerned. We have maybe uh, two or three minutes left here yet. I'm talking with Dr. Earl Tilford. And uh, you see things in the news like um, just a couple of weeks ago, um, or a couple, or maybe a week ago, Britain will send hundreds more troops close to Russia's border. Uh, you see Russia moving a warship and... Um, if you were the president of the United States working with your military advisors in a minute or less, Dr. Tilford, what would you advise us to do? First thing, how much money do you need to get us operationally ready again, doing, doing the training and rebuild our forces, and how much do we need to rebuild our forces? Second, go to NATO and tell them, if you're not, if you're not spending at least 3% of your GDP on defense, uh, get out. Mm-hmm. We are. Then get behind the polls. This will get Vladimir Putin's attention. Uh, put that anti-missile system in the, into the Czech Republic or, or Romania and wherever that is supposed to be and defend it. Also establish a NATO air base in Poland and put American planes there. Defensive planes, F-15 fighter planes that are defensive, that can be used for air defense. They can mm-hmm. also have a, a, uh, an attack mode. Uh, build up the Polish armed forces. They are the best armed forces we have, the most loyal, and they will fight. Mm-hmm. We can't do anything about Ukraine. We should have let them in NATO, but we should never have let them in NATO with the Crimea. And that's Russian, and the Russians mm-hmm. are not going to stand. We're never going to stand for that. They probably won't stand for Ukraine being independent either. 
But when they move in there, we don't go to war. But we make it very clear that you don't go further. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, I don't know who let them in NATO. They're weak. You never let, you never, you don't want a weak ally that stronger nations have a real claim on their That's right. Home. That was the problem with Poland, England, and France being allied in 1939. Poland, uh, Russia, and Nazi Germany had claims, some of them legitimate, on Poland. Uh, and Poland was too weak to contribute to that alliance. So uh, that's what I would say. We need to rebuild NATO. We need to rebuild our military. And the first thing is to rebuild our operations and training. So we have airplanes falling out of the sky because they're not well-maintained. Oh, my. Half our bomber force can't fly. Yeah. Uh, that's the first thing we get in order. Then we need to rebe- We need to build it back up, and we need to modernize. We're still u- using Reagan-era weapon systems. My goodness. Well, today we've been talking with Dr. Earl H. Tilford. He used to teach at Grove City College, and he at one time was director of research at the Strategic Studies Institute, the U.S. Army's Strategic Research Institute, charged with looking 25 years into the future to approximate the strategic paradigm and then recommending force structures, strategies, weapon systems that might best fit future national security requirements. So, Dr. Tilford, it's a real honor to talk with you today, and we just thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Dan. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. <laughs> 